Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. Well, hey, good to be with you. How we doing? That's good. Uh, in our church in Charlotte, we talk, so feel free to, to do that. Good morning. So good to be with you. Uh, as Kent said, my name is Tim. I'm one of the pastors at a church called Citizens Church in Charlotte. I, uh, before I get started and before we get into God's word, just want to let you know that I have the utmost and deepest respect for your leaders and for your pastors here. Uh, not only for the way they lead and the way they follow Jesus, but also for their hospitality. Uh, I got in yesterday around six and immediately was fed the most incredible steak ever by Jeff launching me right into a sermon on fasting and body image. And so here we are, desperately needing the Lord to be with us. Amen. I don't know if you know this, but the Lord is in fact with us. His presence is here. As we gather, entering into this space, for all of us who follow Jesus, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, he also meets us in a unique way as the gathered corporate people of God. And so this is not just another hour and a half from our week. This is a time to be with the Lord. So grab a Bible, get to Ephesians chapter 2. Hopefully you're already there. Um, Quick warning, uh, I use ESV. We use ESV at our church. So if you're following along in the NIV, there's going to be times this morning where it's a little bit different. Uh, this past summer, it's going to take us a minute to get there. This past summer, I was hanging out with uh, two of your pastors, Kent and Jeff, in the mountains of North Carolina on this little every other year retreat we do with a handful of pastors. And they were telling me about this kind of upcoming series you guys are in now. And we've been dialoguing over the past few years as, as you guys have kind of walked through this journey of formation every January. And they were telling me about how you guys were stepping into the practice of fasting. And I'm going to be honest, when I heard you were doing a week on fasting and body image and our relationship to food, I don't know if they invited me or if I invited myself. Just to be honest, because I was so excited that you guys as a church family would tackle an incredibly difficult and yet needed discussion in the issue of fasting. And for me, the reason why I get so excited is because this is a part of kind of an intersection of two aspects of my life, both as a pastor and as an individual follower of Jesus. And so as a pastor, so much of my heart and desire and goal is to lead people into this journey of spiritual formation with Christ. As we've kind of architectured and started building our church over the past two years, we have just decided as a pastoral team to give ourselves to the work of formation, to help our people learn how to be with Jesus and become like Jesus and do what Jesus did through these ancient practices of scripture and prayer and silence, and solitude, and Sabbath, and fasting. But it's also part of my story on an individual level. So for much of my life, I've been in how you would classify or categorize as overweight or obese. 
And I can tell you stories that I, I won't in this setting, but if you want to come ask me later, feel free, of both my own issues with this and ways that I've treated myself and ways that I've been treated with others. On both sides of this kind of relationship coin when it comes to our relationship to food. So in high school, my relationship with food would be described as binging or overeating. And for much of my high school, I spent so much time and brain space thinking about when I was going to eat next or what I was going to eat next or feeling bad over what I had just eaten. And I ate and ate and ate. Just a, a typical day for me as a high school student would be a large breakfast in the morning and then a large lunch and then my favorite fast food stop on the way home from school and then dinner and then a late night out at Waffle House with friends. Constantly and consistently feeling bad and yet feeling like, man, I don't know if I can stop. And then when I got to college, everything kind of flipped for me. So for a number of different reasons, over the course of my freshman year, without even really trying, I lost 75 pounds. Now I remember the first cold day in South Carolina, which is like mid-December, if you're not aware. I went to pull on my jeans, and they just fell right off. It was like literally a scene from a cartoon. You were just like, whoop, whoop, it just went like that. And I remember the feeling like it was yesterday, because it was not, oh, that's kind of good, like good, I'm healthier now. I remember it like it was yesterday. What a feeling of now I matter. Now I have self-worth. Now I can belong. Now people will think different of me. Now girls will want to date me. Now I'll look a certain way. And now I'll be accepted into certain circles. And I remember that feeling of both when I realized that weight had been lost, but I also remember the feeling when the weight loss stalled. And then what I was, like, was I going to do? Because now not only is this just a good way to be healthier, now my entire identity and self-worth is wrapped up on the number on the scale. So I entered into a multi-year battle with what clinicians would call anorexia nervosa, where I entered this years-long struggle of self-starvation for the sake of weight loss. And I remember pushing my body in this season, how much cardio could I physically do in a day and how little could I eat without any too great of repercussions in my work or school. My lowest point, I was doing up to five or six hours of cardio a day and eating as little as 100 or 200 calories. All the while, walking in the dark. All the while, putting on a facade like I was deeply following Jesus in a healthy way. All the while, hiding from my closest friends, my closest families, and even my future spouse. So I come here today well aware on both sides of the equation of the depth that this struggle goes. Come here today not as someone who wants to take this flippantly, not as someone who wants to kind of give you half things and realities from the Bible, throw some verses on it real quick and let's move forward into the practice of fasting. I, I come here as someone deeply interested, one, in your discipleship to Jesus, that you would follow him in every way the Bible gives us to follow him, including Christ's expectation of fasting but also as someone deeply aware of the struggle and empathetic with you wherever you find yourself. And so maybe you're here and you're trying to wrestle with how to step into this practice. Maybe anorexia or bulimia is a part of your present or past reality, and you're just asking the question, is this even possible for me as a follower of Jesus? Maybe you're struggling with the opposite. Maybe you're struggling with compulsive overeating or emotional binging, and you're not sure you could ever even say no to food to begin this process, and you're feeling defeated, beating yourself up. 
But I also think it's worth noting that you don't have to have a clinical diagnosis or be limiting yourself to 200 calories a day or eating 10,000 calories a day to struggle in some way, shape, or form with an unhealthy relationship to food. I think this impacts more of us, maybe even than are willing to admit or acknowledge in our own lives. This is not just a clinical issue. Let me just say from the jump, this will come back around later, this is also not just a female issue. This affects many of us. There's a whole spectrum you can be on in this. Maybe it's that sort of underlying feeling of guilt after that meal out with friends. Maybe it's that overarching just experience of shame after you've, quote, ate more than you should have over the holidays. Maybe it's the grimace when the first thing you look at in the group photo is your body. Maybe it's reaching for the ice cream carton or the McDonald's burger when you're sad and you just want to pick me up. All of these can be evidences of an unhealthy relationship with food in various ways and in varying amounts. And so wherever you're at with this, maybe you don't struggle at all. Chances are there's a lot of people in your life group or in your family who do. And so wherever you're at on the spectrum yourself in this issue, or if you know someone who is struggling in this way, I just want to be helpful for us for just a few minutes this morning. And my goal for us today is to answer this very simple and yet wondrously complex question. How do I fast as a follower of Jesus if I struggle with an unhealthy relationship to food? That's my goal, just to answer that question for us. How do I fast as a follower of Jesus if I struggle with an unhealthy relationship to food? Now, let me just be straightforward and direct about what I don't think the answers are. I don't think the answer is not, is simply fast from something besides food. That cannot be the answer. If you research this, if you just do a quick Google search, even trusted sources, and you say, how do I fast if I struggle in my relationship to food? 99% of them, and I know because I've looked a lot, will say something like, we'll just give up something else. Just don't fast from food. But remember, Kent talked about week one, the biblical idea of fasting, every time it is spelled out in the scriptures, is intentionally going without food and non-water drink for a determined length of time for spiritual purposes. And so we can't just have a theology of fasting that is different than the Bible's theology of fasting. The Bible has categories of abstaining, like going against or pushing something away or refraining from partaking in something else for a season of time, but that's abstaining. Fasting in the scriptures, as I think he laid out well for us, is always in relationship to food and non-water drink. The other answer it can't be is simply not to fast. Remember Jesus in Matthew chapter 6, right? What is the expectation? But when you fast... The expectation from Jesus for his followers is that this would be a part of our life with him. And if we are to say, I cannot fast because of my struggle with body image and food, are we not also saying, therefore Jesus can't sanctify me like he promises he would? Therefore he can't actually heal me like he offers that he will. We don't live in defeat. We live with the power of Christ. So there's more for us here as followers of Jesus. We have to wrestle with this. And I think Ephesians 2 provides a really helpful framework for doing so. And so hopefully you're there by now. What I want to do from Ephesians 2, just so you know where we're going, is to give us three kind of guiding principles for how to think about our relationship to food and our bodies. So we're just going to first talk about how do I begin to fight for health in my relationship to food, and then at the end I'm going to apply it to fasting, okay? So we'll just hold fasting, kind of set it to the side in your mind for the end. I just want to talk about what from the scriptures can we see on how to start taking steps forward on this journey towards health in our relationship to our bodies or our food. Ephesians chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 
one. We doing good? Everybody good? Love it. I'm just going to believe you. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature, at our very core, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. All right, pause there. Three guiding principles. The first will by far be the longest. Number one, recognize your enemies. Recognize your enemies. Paul here is outlining the gospel for the church at Ephesus, and he lays out, okay, church, before you met Jesus, before he saved you and changed you and gave you a new heart, all of the incredible, beautiful realities we have in the gospel, he says you were dead in your sin and enslaved by three particular things. What theologians throughout church history have called the three enemies of the soul, who through thousands of years, church fathers, throughout history have said there are three distinct enemies, both for those who have yet to follow Jesus and for those who are following Jesus, three distinct enemies that would rob us and keep us and attack us so that we do not live a flourishing life of discipleship to Christ. And all three of those enemies, Paul outlines in Ephesians chapter two, the world, right? He says, following the course of this world, the flesh, says the passions of the flesh, and the devil, what he calls the prince of the power of the air. And all three of these, I want to show us, are working to lead us to an unhealthy relationship to food. So let me just show you what I mean, okay? If it's not enough, we're talking about body image. Let's also talk about the devil, all right? <sighs> Welcome. This is what we do in North Carolina, I guess. All right, let's talk about the devil. We're going to break down each one. This is the longest point, but I think it's so helpful for us to understand. Three enemies of the soul. Number one, the devil. Now, just so we're clear, the devil in the scriptures is not like the pitchfork guy from the Disney cartoons, all right? Like, that's not red with a tail and horns and a little pitchfork. That's not the picture of the devil. In fact, the scriptures actually refer to him as an angel of light. And the devil, his primary work in your life is not to, like, make your car break down. That's not what he's after. First and foremost, he comes as a deceiver, in fact, Satan, or Satan in the original Hebrew, actually means accuser, one who lives to lie to, deceive, and accuse the people of God. Now, how does he primarily do this? Not through statements and not through things that don't matter, right? So the devil's not showing up in your quiet time being like, the world is flat, yeah? Like, he doesn't... <laughs> if you believe that, I'm so sorry. Guest speaker <laughs> perks. He shows up with a question and with questions that have weight to them. So think about Genesis chapter 3, right? He shows up the first time we see the devil in the scriptures. He shows up in the form of a serpent to Adam and Eve. And what does he come with? A question. Did God actually say? What he's doing there is trying to get them, among other things, to question the goodness and kindness of God. Can you trust him? Surely he's withholding from you. Don't you think he actually just doesn't want you to know what he knows? Don't you think he's actually just trying to keep you from the good life of being like him? And listen to me, he does the exact same thing today to us when it comes to food in our bodies. Hey, shouldn't you feel bad about that pizza you ate last night? Don't you see how you look 
in that picture? Don't you think the reason nobody wants to date you is because of your size? Hey, don't you think in this hard time you're going through, you really don't need community, you need cake. You really don't need prayer, you need pizza. Now, he surely doesn't alliterate like that. (laughs) But you get the point. Those are deceptive questions to get you to doubt what God has declared over you in Christ Jesus. Did God actually say? Did God actually claim identity over you outside of what you look like or how much you weigh? Did God actually promise peace that, ha- that surpasses all understanding outside of food and comfort? But the power in lies is that there's a part of us that is drawn to believe them. Right? If a lie is not believable, then it will have no power over you. For example, if you were to come to me and be like, Tim, don't you think your life would be better as a Tennessee football fan? That lie has no power over me. Because <laughs> it's unbelievable. It's like, no, obviously. Easy answer. No way. I might cheer for more wins than I do as a South Carolina fan, but it would not be better. I would not be happier. But if you were to come to me and say, hey, Tim, don't you think your life would be better and you'd be happier if you could grow a real beard like Kent? <laughs> yes! <laughs> That's believable. Instead of this, whatever this is. We planted a church and had two kids in the course of three years. That's why I'm bald, in case you're wondering. Listen, here's my point. The deceptive questions of the devil have power because they are compelling. And they're compelling because they speak to a part of us that the scriptures would call the flesh, which is our second enemy of our soul, the flesh. Kent hit on this last week. The flesh is not like your skin. The flesh in the scriptures is the operating system within you that defaults to life without God. The flesh is this kind of carnal pull that you feel and experience within you that draws you to operate independently from God and with a life opposed to God. In other words, the question the flesh is always asking is this, how do I find everything offered to me in Christ Jesus without Christ Jesus? Forgiveness, cleansing, identity, meaning, value, worth, joy, peace, life, etc., etc., etc. How do I find all of that apart from God? The flesh is what's behind every form of identity creation or peace finding without God at the center. You are what you do for work. You are the family that you have. You are your relationship status. That is all the lies of the flesh. The flesh is always asking, how do I find life and salvation apart from God? And it works the exact same way in our disordered relationship with food in our bodies. So much of our unhealthy relationship to to food involves the flesh convincing us we must try to save ourselves. It's the creating and following or breaking of rules that we have made to gain acceptance, approval, joy, peace, and worth a.k.a. salvation, outside of the gospel. So follow me here. When we starve ourselves or severely limit our caloric intake, that is us creating and following rules we have created around how much we can or can't eat and how much we can or can't weigh to gain acceptance, approval, and welcome. Sometimes from others, sometimes from ourselves. When we grimace at our bodies in the photo, that is us creating and following rules we have created around how we are supposed to look or not look to gain acceptance or approval or worth. 
when we run to food after a breakup or a hard day or as a little kind of midday pick-me-up in the middle of the work week. That is us creating and following our own path for how to find joy and peace in life outside of God. It's a track, right? You've got the devil with deceptive questions. Hey, don't you think you're defined by what you look like and how you eat or don't eat? And your flesh grabs onto this. Yes, I do think that's what defines me. A way finally to justify myself and gain meaning and value apart from God. And then all of this, unfortunately for us, is rehearsed and reinforced by the world. The third enemy of the soul is the world. Best definition I've heard of the world when it comes to the way the scriptures define it is that it's the prevailing narratives of the society around you. So you think of the world, don't think of the flesh and bones type of stuff of society and culture. Think of the prevailing narratives of the society around you, which, in case you haven't noticed, is incredibly confusing in how it talks about food in our bodies. Our culture is an incredibly difficult one. Every culture throughout history, this is the lie we can fall into to think that it's either worse now or better now. Every culture throughout history has always ways that it runs counter to and aligned with the realities of Jesus. Every culture. I think one of the distinct ways our culture runs counter to the ways of Jesus is in how it trains us to think about our bodies and how it trains us to think about food. Pastor Josh Porter, who's a pastor out in Washington State, he's done a ton of writing around formation and fasting, says it this way, and I love this quote. He says, bodily idolatry in America is a monster with two heads. That's strong. I mean, think about it, right? Think about your experience checking out at a grocery store. And I know it's like 2023, not 2019, but just think about it, all right? We all Instacart now, right? But remember the days when you had to actually like go through a pickup line and you look and there's always magazines at the checkout counter, right? And think about it, two magazines so easily right next to each other. The first is a five ingredient recipe to the best cheesecake for your family this holiday season. And then right next to it, literally one over is a magazine that says six exercises to Chris Hemsworth abs. (laughs) Which I don't know about you, but those two things do not go together in my world, right? Cheesecake and Chris Hemsworth abs are not, they're not coexisting in Tim Olson's life. But think about how incredibly confusing those two messages being put next to each other are. I don't know about you, but Charlotte is full of these two competing narratives. We love our food in Charlotte. I mean, we love it. New restaurants every single day. Banking culture is huge in our city, and bankers tend to have a lot of money and like to eat out. And so there's steakhouses all the time and tacos all the time. Like, just new restaurants, it seems like, every single week. And also, everyone loves CrossFit. (laughs) And so track what happens, right? So now, hey, don't you feel bad if you don't try the latest restaurant? Don't you feel bad if you don't eat great tasting, wonderful, delicious food all of the time? But also, don't you feel bad if your body doesn't look a certain way? And so it traps us in these two competing narratives, this monster with two heads, where we feel shame and guilt over not always having the most incredible food and shame and guilt over not looking a certain way. And it keeps us what? Going back to the incredible food and going back to our gym memberships. And so notice, let me kind of put all of this together for us. Here's how I would summarize what's happening with these three enemies. Deceitful ideas that play to disordered desires, normalized by a sinful society. That's the enemies of the soul when it comes to our relationship to food in our bodies. Deceitful ideas. The devil shows up with deceitful questions asking you, aren't you only as valuable as the number on the scale? 
Aren't you only as valuable or worthwhile or have as much significance as how you look? That play to disordered desires. Yes, how do I find life and value and worth and meaning apart from God? Normalized in a sinful society where you feel guilty about what you eat or don't eat and feel guilty about how you look or don't look. Deceitful ideas that play to disordered desires normalized in a sinful society. And here's my point. Here's my point in all of this. Recognize your enemies. Your enemy in your struggle with food is not food. Your enemy in your struggle with your body is not your body. Your enemy in your struggle with the eating disorder is not actually the eating disorder. It's not the scale. It's not the amount of weight you are or are not. It's not even the lies that you tell yourself. You have three enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Because here's what happens if we don't recognize that those are our enemies, is we begin to bethink, think, okay, if the enemy is my metabolism, if the enemy in my struggle with food is my view of food, if the enemy with my struggle of food is how much I weigh or my inability to resist cravings, whatever you want to fill in the blank is your what proposed enemy against food is that when you create health or get health around that area, you will find that you have not actually beaten the struggle, you've just replaced it. Right? And so if the devil speaks over you, here's how you find identity, and you say, okay, I'm going to find identity by how much I weigh, and then you finally get to that weight you think you wanted, you're going to learn the devil is always skilled in creating new ways for you to find life without God. And so either the barometer will move. Yeah, really you thought that weight, but actually it's this weight. Hey, really you thought it was that size, but it's actually this size. Hey, really you thought it was that meal, but it's actually this meal. Rather than going, no, this is the devil and these are his schemes from the very beginning. He's a, a liar, right? Isn't that what Jesus says about him? He's the father of lies, always living to draw our flesh into life without God. So recognize your enemies. The world, the flesh, the devil. So what do we do with that, right? If those are our enemies, can we see them? We recognize them. What do we do? Well, notice the specific verb tense Paul uses in Ephesians chapter 2. It's not by chance. It's very clearly outlined for us. He says, that is who you are were. So you were. It's not who you are now in Christ Jesus. Pick it back up in verse 4. Ephesians chapter 2. It says, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Skip down to verse 8. We'll come back to 6 and 7. For by grace... You have been saved through what? Faith. This is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. So number one, recognize your enemies. Number two, set down your false gospel. Set down your false gospel. Paul lays out explicitly for the church in Ephesus, you are saved by grace. You cannot earn your salvation. You cannot prove yourself worthy of God's love. You cannot on your own satisfy the gnawings of your shame in your conscience. You cannot silence the guilt. You cannot, no matter how much you weigh or how you look, declare over yourself good enough. He says, this is not your own doing. You are saved by grace through faith. It is a gift from God. And so when the flesh would tell us there is a way to gain identity and value and meaning apart from God through food, whether starving or binging, we must set it down. 
We fight to remember as Christians for thousands of years. There's a reason why Paul, just a couple years after Jesus, is having to remind the church, lest we forget, you cannot earn your salvation. You cannot work your way into value. You cannot work your way into meaning or worth that is offered to you only in the gospel of Jesus. And so we fight to remember, okay, no clothing size or number on the scale can save us. No perfect day of caloric intake and macronutrients can bring us life and joy. Right? No cruise farm ice cream cone can give me lasting peace, although delicious. No stock and barrel burger is going to satisfy the shame of my soul. I Googled for those references. You're welcome. Because <laughs> listen to me, all of it is an attempt to do what humanity has tried to do from Genesis 3, to right our own wrongs, to cover our own shame. I was listening uh, to a podcast and getting ready to, to study this, and I thought... She said something so, the lady I was getting interviewed about, body image and disorders, said something so clear, and I, I didn't think to put it on the slide, so I'm sorry. Um, but she was talking about this pattern of Genesis 3. From the very beginning, Adam and Eve, they sin, right, and shame and guilt enter the world, and they're separated from God. They walked in perfect relationship with him, and now they're separated because of sin. And what do they do? They sow for themselves fig leaves, right, fig leaves of covering over their shame. And she said, there are ways that we think making rules around what we eat or don't eat is a new way to create fig leaves in our lives. I feel shame, and so how do I cover that up? How do I make myself feel better? And Paul's invitation is, no, do not forget, it is a gift of God. You cannot save yourself. You cannot make yourself right only through the gospel. So fill in the blanks, right? here. Like reword this, this passage, right? It is a gift of God, not a result of works, right? Think about it this way. It is a gift of God, not a result of your perfect diet and fitness plan. Salvation is a gift of God, not a result of you being the ideal size. Salvation is a gift of God, not found in that meal that's calling for your attention. It is a gift of God. And so the question we must wrestle with at the base level of our issues with food is how are we trying to save ourselves and find peace through our eating habits? And how does the gospel invite us to lay it down? We lay down our false gospels, which is point three, number three. Live into your identity and position in Christ. Live into your identity and position in Christ. Let's go back to verse four. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Notice that phrase, if you're the type that likes to underline, write in your Bible, underline that phrase, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Church, if you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus, that is your present reality. You are seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, meaning everything, even right now, we share in everything that belongs to Jesus. That's what that means. If it is true of Jesus, it is now true of us. We are children of God with Jesus. We are recipients of an eternal inheritance from God with Jesus. We are secure and never going to be outside of the family or hand of God ever again with Jesus. 
So just see the freedom that is offered to us in this reality. Yes, the number on the scale isn't what we wish it was, but I'm seated in the heavenly places with Christ and everything that he has is mine. Yes, I don't look the way that I want to look in that photo, but I'm seated in the heavenly places with Christ and everything that he has is mine. Yes, everything within me wants to run after this food or this meal to try to bring me peace, but I don't have to because I'm seated in the heavenly places with Christ and everything that he has is mine. Listen to me. If you are a follower of Jesus, we're just saying it. What's the truth you have to remind yourself of? Is God not madly in love with you? I know, man, I, I know the lie right now in your soul that makes you want to make yourself the exception. Yeah, yeah, Tim, I get it, loved by God, but also I look this way. Yeah, Tim, I get it, loved by God, but I can't stop eating. Yeah, Tim, loved by God, but you don't know my struggle. You don't know what it's like when I put on that outfit, how I feel. I do. And God would declare over you as well, in Christ Jesus, that everything he has is yours. He is madly in love with you. And then we forget it. And the next morning we wake up, and God's mercies are new again for us. And we remind ourselves again, through his people and through his word. Oh yeah, he's in love with me and I'm in love with him. And then we forget it <laughs> and we wake up the next morning and we get in God's word and we get with this people and we remember, oh yeah, God's in love with me and I'm in love with him. And then we forget it. <laughs> Is that not the struggle of the Christian life? In all aspects, including our relationship to food and our bodies. We go back to our identity in Christ. So here's, here's how I would summarize kind of those three guiding principles for us. We have to see, we have to recognize how are the three enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil, working to get me to believe my salvation and worth is found in my body size, my weight, food, etc. We recognize that's a false gospel and we set it down. We stop trying to save ourselves and we learn more and more with each passing temptation and draw to do it again to instead pick up and live into our identity in Christ. But what does that have to do with fasting? Right? Hopefully that's helpful. Hopefully you're like, that's some good stuff to think about and talk about with my life group. But what does that have to do with, with fasting? How do I even begin to step into this practice? Well, think back to week one. I think back to week one. Kent answered this question. He said, when do we fast? And his answer was saying that in the scriptures, it seems to be that we fast when a situation in life is deserving of it. He said, quote, it's a good quote, fasting is not so much something we choose to do out of the blue as it is something we feel compelled to do in response to a moment or a situation profound enough for it. So it's not something we decide, you know what, I want to fast today. You can, that's, that's a good practice for followers of Jesus. But most of the time in the scriptures, it is a response to a situation that calls for it to seek the Lord in the midst of that. And we saw that some of the situations in scripture that prompt fasting include being grieved by sin, living in a time of mourning, when we need strength to fight temptation, and when we are afraid. And I wonder, do any of those emotions sound like how you feel in your struggle with food in your body? 
mourning, grieving, temptation, fear. I know that sounds like my struggle and my desires and my pulls. So what does the Bible say to do? To fast and pray, to see what God might do. And so here's, here's the key, here's the kind of what I was trying to work us through this whole time. Rather than not fasting because of your unhealthy relationship to food, or fasting despite, kind of like ignoring your unhealthy relationship with food, may it be possible that the invitation of the scriptures is that fasting could be a means by which God might continue to sanctify you in your relationship with food. You see that? Hear nothing else. Hear hear this. Rather than I'm not going to fast because of my unhealthy relationship with food, or I'm going to fast and just kind of ignore my unhealthy relationship with food, what if fasting was actually a means by which God grows you into health in your relationship with food in your body? Because, don't forget, fasting is not actually about food. Fasting is about God. It's about Christ. It's about gazing on him. It's about restraining from food and non-water drink for a particular set period of time to focus our gaze upon Christ. And what do we need more when these three enemies are attacking us and we're tempted to pick up a false gospel than to lay it down and focus our gaze on Christ? So might fasting actually be a tool in the hands of our loving, gracious, kind, merciful Heavenly Father to actually grow us into health in our relationship with food? in our relationship with our bodies. So what does this mean practically? How do we begin to, to kind of take this step? Let me just close. I have no idea how you guys want me to do on time, so here we go. Uh, let me just close with a few brief action steps I've seen be really fruitful in my life. This is um, just helpful, kind of one-on-one type of small step stuff. Number one, bring your struggle to others. Bring your struggle to others. Lies grow in darkness. Suffering holds more weight in darkness. Man, for, for years, I kept this a struggle. Let me just, uh, can I speak to the guys in the room? Is that allowed? Am I allowed to do that? I struggled for years, years in silence with this stuff because I believed the lie that there was, this was just a female or issue that applied to women. Years. And I think we do a disservice in church when we decide, okay, sexual sin is a guy issue and body image stuff is a woman issue. We do a disservice to everybody because neither are just a one sex, one gender issue. So let me just speak to you. If you're a dude in this room and you are struggling and you are believing the lie that, no, that's what women talk about. That's like body issue stuff, food issue stuff. Like that's not a dude thing. Let me just encourage you. It's a dude thing. So share it. Not everybody in the room, share your struggle. I know that City Church is enough like my church in Charlotte, to know that if you go into life group and you say, hey guys, this is my struggle, this is my burden, this is what I'm, I'm going through, I know that you're going to, going to be received with the welcome of Jesus. So share it. And don't just share it one time and be like, all right, I wanted to let you know. Don't be afraid to share it in the ongoing stuff of life, right? If your life group member's like, hey, let's go grab lunch. Do you wanna go to this place? And you know, okay, if I go to that place, it's gonna set something off in me. It's gonna be a struggle as I face the enemies of my soul. If I go to this place to eat because of the options it offers, share the struggle in that moment. Hey, can we go here instead? Hey, I'm struggling with this. Hey, even as I'm eating this, this is hard for me right now. That kind of openness is what we're invited to in Christ Jesus, is it not? To receive the welcome of Christ through his people. Number two, fast in community fast in community. I love that one of the things you guys are doing in this series is fasting as life groups. 
right? It's kind of setting aside time. Fast in community. Hey, hey, I'm struggling with this. You guys know because I've opened up now that I struggle with this. I'm thinking about fasting tomorrow. Will you just pray for me? Would you check in at noon and just see like, hey, how's your, how's your health with that? How's your mindset? Are you finding some worth because you're not eating today? How are you being tempted? Just fast in the, in the, in the context of community, right? When Jesus says, don't let people know you're fasting, that's not what he's talking about is to not do it as the people of God. I think y'all handled that already. He's talking about not doing it as a means of self-righteousness, of looking good before others. But you fast in community. Hey, I'm fasting today. Would you pray for me? Would you check in on me? Would you help me? Let's do it together. Number three, start small. Start small. Man, if a day feels overwhelming, try like two hours. I'm serious. For some of us, two hours is, is difficult. Try it. Four hours. Eight hours. Ten hours. 12 hours, start small, see if the Lord might strengthen you. Spiritual practices are like any other form of training. We do a little bit at a time and we grow. We do a little bit at a time and we grow. Number four, last one, keep Christ as the focus. Keep Christ as the focus. It's really easy, especially if you're kind of in the thick of a struggle with body image and food to make fasting about the food. And I just don't think you can hear enough in this series. Fasting is not about food. It's about Jesus. So keep him at the center. Okay, yeah, I'm fasting, and there's going to be a lot of ways my mind wants to twist this and tempt me, and the, the three enemies of my soul want to pull me in a certain direction, but no, I'm just going to keep the focus on Christ. I'm going to keep the focus on him, on the Lord, and what he's doing in my heart. So here's how I want to close for us. Um, I'm not going to ask you to stand if you're struggling with this, but what I want to do is I just want us to, to pray. I want to pray for you. I, I know how hard this struggle can be in my own life. If you want to talk more after, I'll make myself available down here. If you want to hear um, more about some of what was helpful as I continue to kind of walk through this, even in my own journey. Let me just encourage you. Um, I'm going to take a second. I'm going to pray. And one of the things that Christians for, for a long, long time have seen as helpful when they are being prayed for and want to receive that prayer is just to put their bodies in a position of receptivity. What we do with our bodies matters, right? That's why fasting is important. And so I would just encourage you, if you want to receive this, just to open your palms towards heaven, to just put your body in a position that reflects what your heart is wanting to do, which is just to receive. And I just want to pray for you because I think the Lord works in prayer, and I think he works by the power of his spirit. And I'm believing for you as a church family that there are folks today who walked in this morning saying, there's no way I can fast because of my struggle, that the Lord wants to set free from that and start taking you on the journey of healing and start introducing this practice into your life. And so I believe that. I'm going to pray for that. I'm going to pray for you that you would start this journey towards health with the Lord. And so if you don't mind, I'm going to pray and then we'll sing. Let's pray.